to take your Bibles with me or your copy of the scriptures and let's turn together to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, and let's turn again to God's word as we continue our study through Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 10, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 24 and following, verses 24 and following. So Matthew chapter 10, we're right in the middle of the second largest teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples in the gospel of Matthew. And this is his key instruction on discipleship. Lest we have questions about what does it mean to be a disciple, we'll consider some of those this morning. This is outside of the Sermon on the Mount, the next major section of scripture, where Jesus is preparing to send out his disciples on mission. As we'll see this morning, he begins to explain for them and for us and for all time until his second return, until his coming again, what discipleship looks like, or for our purposes this morning, the meaning of discipleship. So look with me in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. The Word of God says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, herald, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But know this, verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value, much more value than many sparrows. Well, this is the word of God. As we look here in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples as we have been looking at And this morning, we continue this exposition of the text where he tells his disciples what a disciple is, as if maybe they don't know. They need a reminder lesson. It's kind of confusing, just so so you're following along. At the beginning of Matthew 10, the text tells us that Jesus calls his 12 disciples to him. He's sending them out as, for the first time, apostles. But then he continues to explain to them, literally, this is a football, like a coach to his team, lest they forget the basics of what they are doing. And oftentimes, if you're a teacher or you're a coach or you're a parent, you find yourself doing that type of thing. Wait a second. Let's just go back to the drawing board. Let's go back to the beginning. And that is what Jesus is doing here. He's telling his disciples, maybe the phrase we use often is, is preaching to the choir, right? You're preaching to the choir, Legrand. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's instructing his disciples about what a disciple is and what a disciple looks like. Unless we think we've all heard this before, there was one of the 12 who never got it. Let's just remember that. And every time the church gathers, there are those who, who will not get it or who don't get it. When we think about our own current day and age, there are those who think they know what it means to be a believer, to follow Christ. And then we have the terms that Jesus gives here that helps us know with crystal clarity what it means. Back in the 1980s, author and pastor James Montgomery Boyce in his book, Christ's Call of Discipleship, made waves in the evangelical world and in the Christian world because of his emphasis of picking up Jesus' theme of discipleship. And here's one quote that he has. He says, There is a fatal flaw or defect in the life of Christ's church in the 21st century. A lack of true discipleship. Discipleship means forsaking everything and to follow Christ. But for many of today's professing Christians, perhaps the majority, he says, 
It is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity, there is actually very little of the following of Christ himself. Many who are fervently calling him Lord, Lord, are not true disciples. As we pick up his message and consider what Jesus is saying here, we echo what James Montgomery Boyce and say to him, Amen and Amen. And that is what Jesus is instructing his disciples. And by launching this morning, I want to make a point of emphasis to clarify our terms. I want to give you an example. So I'm going to ask that you turn to Acts chapter 6. In Matthew 10, we just have an ongoing passage where Jesus is saying, here's what it is, here's what it means to be a disciple. Maybe for our vernacular today, we would say, here's what it means to be a Christian. Are you a Christian? We use the word Christian and disciple interchangeably. But I just want to like bring us back to the drawing board and remind us that there was a day, there was a time where the word Christian was not known yet. That term of derision that was applied to the church in the end of the book of Acts as those who were little Christ, it was meant to be a mocking title, a term of derision. It was meant to be a term of scorn to which the Christians and the disciples of Christ gladly owned. We are followers of Christ, following our passage here. But we've gotten away from the language of what a disciple is. And I want to show you how the Holy Spirit and how Luke records the understanding of not only the organic church, but also those who made up the church and how he uses that word. So just look with me in Acts chapter 6. Beginning there in verse 1, Luke says this. He says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples... So today we would say the church, the Christians. That's, that, that would be our most common word. But in the book of Acts, in the book of Matthew, and in the Gospels, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, I think it's over 71 times, 71 times I believe it is, Matthew uses the word, records the word disciple or disciples. Here we see the same pattern. The number of disciples were multiplying. The early church is exploding. Now because of this, There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, or the Greeks, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution and care. Then the twelve, speaking of the disciples, then the twelve apostles summoned the multitude, speaking of the church at large, the multitude of the disciples, and they said this, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, Therefore, brethren, it's not to say, and by the way, that they can't do that or that it's beneath them. They can't do both all the time. There has to be structure and organization within the church. There are many who can do this, but there are not many who can do what God has called the apostles to do. And so if the apostles are doing what everyone can do, it is not serving the church as God has designed the church to be served, just by way of explanation. It's not above them, as we'll come back to our text and see, the servant is like his master. And what is our master? He is, he is the one who comes to serve. He is the one who comes to save. Our master is our model, no doubt about it. Here in Acts 6, but seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to the word and to the ministry, uh, to, to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, this saying pleased the whole multitude, and again, the context is the disciples there. Now, notice verse 7. This is the third use of disciples describing the church, or those who are following Christ. Then, verse 7, the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, this is just Acts chapter 6. And in the first few verses, we've seen three uses of how the church, those who follow Christ, are described. And it's notice the disciples. This is, this is how they are, this is their name, this is their title. This is Jesus giving instruction back in Matthew chapter 10 of what we see the early church unfolding and being added to and exploding in the number of the disciples. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 10. I just want to establish what we're talking about here. This is not just the original 12. This includes them, but this has an eye in view for us even here in Kingston, Tennessee today and all who call upon the name of the Lord and who follow Christ. We are disciples. And Jesus here wants us to know the character of disciples. He informs their expectations. 
And last week, before he sends them out on a mission, we saw in verse 16, coming back here to Matthew chapter 10, he answers the questions that everybody has when they're sent out to represent someone else. And he wants them to know how they will be received. How will people respond? And notice, just by way of review, going back to Matthew chapter 10, he tells them, the analogy has changed. Behold, I send you out as sheep among the wolves, or in the midst of wolves. Some conversations I had since the sermon last Sunday is, wait, is, is the context is, previously Jesus has said, I'm weeping for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now the analogy has changed. He's, he's calling his disciples as sheep, who now bring the message to the wolves. Verse 16, he gives the instruction. He says this, Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So he instructs his disciples to stay close to Christ, to be understanding of the signs of the times, to understand the mission field that they are serving and going to. He describes for them the aggression that they will receive in verses 17 and 18, where they will experience betrayal. They will be served up to government leaders. They will experience suffering and hostility. They are not to be concerned about this. Verses 19 and 20 says they will not be alone. They will not suffer alone. They will not be in the courtroom alone. They They will not experience betrayal alone because they have a faithful heavenly father who loves his children and who will give them the comfort of his spirit, who will give them the words to speak and to say. This type of persecution that they will experience will be governmental, religious, societal, and even those in their own family, their spouses, their their parents, their children. This has in view not only the then and there, but also in the here and now, and also in what is yet to come. And as we look at this passage, the questions that we have to ask ourselves as we apply God's text to our heart is, is am I ready for this type of persecution? Am I being faithful to the truth that I know, that I hear week after week? Last Sunday, I, I preached this message just trying to remind our church that it is our job to be ready for persecution. And little did I know, if you were here last Sunday, you, you remember the context of that. I made a comment. I said, There are those around the world this morning, last Sunday morning and even this morning for sure, who know the cost that it takes, that as they stand and minister, as they stand and preach, their lives are at stake. Within 24 hours of saying that in this pulpit, I got a phone call from my dad, and he wanted to know that if I had I heard the news about a missionary that we had supported for many years in the Middle East. I said, no, I haven't heard that. I don't know what you're talking about. And he delivered the news to me that he had been shot and killed right outside his home as he was returning home from ministry. His wife was with him and his baby son was present. They were unharmed, and yet he was just killed on the spot. This is someone that is not theoretical. This is not someone that's way out there in the, in the, you know, the, the black hole of the universe. This is someone that we knew, someone that we prayed for, someone that we supported, and some that maybe some of you know as well. Cannot say his name because of just protection of the family. They, the U.S. Embassy has brought them home and is worried about their well-being and their safety even to this present hour. But my point is this. This is not just some hypothetical situation. Jesus wants us to know if we are faithful to the gospel, if we are faithful as his disciples, we need to be ready for betrayal. We don't need to be surprised. You put it like this. We don't need to be surprised when it happens. When it happens, as you persevere in grace, notice with me verse 22, he who endures to the end will be saved. This is the doctrine of preserving grace. This doesn't save us, but this is the fruit of our profession. This is the fruit of our salvation. That when this happens, we don't apostatize, like Jude describes in the danger of apostasy. The topography of life brings many emotions, joys, and trials. But Jesus tells his disciples, do not be superficial. When you are betrayed and it's painful and it's personal, don't lose your faith. Know that it's going to happen. And when it happens, our text verse 24 this morning, remember a disciple is not above his master. 
Now, two key doctrines are upholding this section of his teaching here in, in chapter 10. I just mentioned one of them. We don't have time to unpack it, but it's the doctrine of preserving grace or perseverance. How we can know that our salvation is what we say it is, our salvation is where we, we give our conversion testimony, is, is not that we prayed a prayer uh, in the past, in a timeline, in a chronological timeline, although that might be when we called upon the name of the Lord and are saved. But that's not the fruit of our assurance. The fruit of our assurance is that we are bearing fruit today, that we're walking with Jesus today, and that we are not straying from the gospel we say we prayed in the past. Does that make sense? It's called preserving grace. It is a fruit of our walking with Christ, but it's all of grace. It's all of Christ. It's his preserving grace. And that's why I use that word preserving grace instead of maybe perseverance of the saint. It's all of God's preserving grace. We take comfort in that. There's another key doctrine that we see in this passage. It extends all the way down to the end of the verses that we just read were verses 29 and 30, where Jesus gives the illustrations of the sparrows and says, the greater than principle, if I know the very hairs of your head and I know the details about the birds of the air and the sparrows that exist, what about you? So much greater are you. We think of this doctrinal theme of God's providence. Notice verse 23. I just don't want to skip over these because this gives comfort to us as disciples of Jesus, of knowing that he is preserving our profession, he is leading us by his spirit as we're faithful to his gospel. At the same time, he governs our steps. The steps, for example, of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 23, just by way of reminder, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you that you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There's an eschatological, speaking of end times tone here at the end of this verse, speaking of when the Son of Man comes. But I want us to notice what he tells his disciples to do is be wise as a serpent or shrewd as a serpent and harmless as a dove. But don't be foolish. Follow the Lord. I'm sending you out to preach the message. But when they persecute you, verse 23, flee to another. So many times we see people that are in two extremes, or maybe we as a disciple in seeking to be faithful to Jesus, we, we move back and forth between two extremes of, of, of not using our, our wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives in the Word of God, and we're just plain foolish. Or we're so conniving and so diplomatic that we lose the beauty of Christ and the simplicity of Christ and the guilelessness that God calls us to have. We're to have both, and we're to follow His, His Spirit. And that means knowing when to change or when to move on. We all know that missions trips don't last forever. We all know that service to Christ in one sense could be like an assignment. God gives us assignments. Many of you have served the Lord in different ways throughout the year. But providentially, your life, excuse me, and then providentially through circumstances, he worked in your life to let you know it's time to move on. Do you know what I'm talking about? Things don't always last forever, and if God in his good grace allows that, then wonderful, praise the Lord. But the Lord works in different ways. I want to give you an example. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, he, and the same thing that he calls his disciples to embody and to do. Just two pages over, Matthew 12, verse 15, Jesus models for us. He models the wisdom that he calls his disciples to have. Matthew 12, 15, now when he departed from that place, Jesus went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked Jesus, saying this, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? So it was a trick question. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then? Notice this, how much more argument Jesus makes. In the, our text, it's sparrows here, it's sheep and mankind. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and was restored whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus, notice here, knew it, he withdrew from that place. Jesus is not belligerent. 
Here Jesus models for us following the Father's leading, following the Father's will. But when he became aware that they had turned against him, it's not his time. Text after text in the Gospels, we see this. We see this when he went to his hometown, when he went into the synagogue, and he read the prophecy that prophesied of himself. The response of the crowd was one of hostility, that they, they desired to run him off a cliff. What did Jesus do? He moved on from that place. He left. It was not his time. He was following the leading of the Holy Spirit. He was following the Father's will. We don't have to turn there, but in Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we see another example where Paul, when he got wind of persecution that was coming his way, evaded it. He knew how to exercise wisdom and discernment. But yet he trusted in the good providence of God that when he was imprisoned, he knew that God purposed this for him. So friends, I want us to see and ask ourselves the question this morning, do you see God's comforting hand in your life this morning? Do you see his leading you? Do you see his stopping you? God works through people. God works through bosses. God works through spouses. God works through relatives. God works through neighbors. And sometimes we don't like the means that he uses, but God uses them providentially to lead us by his spirit. Are you with me this morning? God not only uses people, God uses circumstances. And I just want to remind you that a lot of your life can be comforted and assured this morning when you rest in the providential hand of our God. Many people this week were wringing their hands because life didn't turn out for them socially and politically like they wanted. Listen, friends, that's not us this morning. We rest in the sovereign, providential hand of our God. We don't go around worrying. And that's what Jesus wants his disciples to know. So there's a, there's a doctrine here, not only of the preserving grace of God underneath this text, but there's also the doctrine of the providential leading hand of God where Jesus wants his disciples to know his spirit, to follow his spirit, and to trust him and his leading and his guiding of them for his plan in their lives. Now look with me as we move back into our text, Matthew chapter 10, Coming back into verse 24, Jesus here begins to describe for us, beginning at verse 24, the characteristics of discipleship, the birthmarks. If we say we are a disciple, these are things he wants us to know, things that we are to do and be, excuse me, things we are to be before we go out and serve him. So number one, verse 24, is the concept of discipleship. The concept of discipleship. And he says in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. So the basic understanding, the construct, the concept of what discipleship is. And as basic as this is, it is profound. It is profound. Many times we think of persecution as why am I being persecuted or why is life not going my way like the American dream says it's supposed to go? I thought if I came to Jesus that he had a wonderful plan for my life. What's happening? As we saw last week, persecution is a part of the call of Christ. Again, where do we see that in Scripture? Look at verse 24. The disciple is not above his teacher. Look at the pattern of Christ for us. Now, the beauty of this is Simple, but notice, I just want to, by way of example, give you the understanding that we don't suffer alone for Christ. When we think of suffering, when we think of persecution, this is a part of the call to the church, the call to disciples. But most importantly, this is a fellowship that we enter into with our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Another way of saying it like this is there's nothing that I will go through, there is nothing that you will go through that Christ himself has not already gone through for us. There are no dark rooms in front of us that Christ himself has not already gone before. The light of life. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yes, all who live and desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Philippians 1, 27, Paul gives the reminder to the church, he says this, When I come to hear of your affairs, I want to know that you stand fast together. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, like this is the privilege of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Why is it that as, as Americans we forget this? And the reason is, is we live in a very pampered culture. We live in a very pampered society. 
And the truth is, is we don't stand for Christ. We don't live for Christ. But when we do, if we do, remember this, the disciple is not above his teacher. Do you see how this is countercultural to the modern message? This message will not draw crowds here unless the Holy Spirit desires to draw the crowds. Come to Jesus so that you can have suffering. Come to Jesus so that you may be persecuted. Come to Jesus and you might lose your job. Isn't that great? Come to Jesus and your mom and dad might kick you out of the house. Come to Jesus and your children might one day disagree with you and turn against you. Come to Jesus and on and on and on we could go. And what Jesus wants us to know is that he is worth it and don't be surprised when it happens. Now, we could spend a Bible conference of looking at this principle, this construct of discipleship, and simply considering the life of Christ and how the disciple is not above his teacher. But we we obviously do not have time for that this morning, but I do want to point to two things. The first speaks to, in our relationship to the Lord as his disciples, that of a student and that of a slave. So we consider we're not above our Lord and Master. There's two aspects that are present in the text here. It's that of a student and that of a slave. Another way of saying it is this. We submit with our minds and we submit with our will. We submit with our minds and we submit with our will. First of all, that first one there. The disciple is not above his teacher. Verse 24. This speaks of our being a student. In fact, the very essence of what a disciple is, is a learner. Someone who is growing an apprentice. Someone is, who is committed to a life of learning, being fruitful, growing in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I want us to consider something for a, more, for a moment this morning is this. As we think about submitting our hearts and our minds to Christ, this is the law in the education world of what's known as the law of the learner. There's the law of the teacher and there's the law of the learner. We are to learn from Christ, to learn of his ways, to learn of his teaching, to learn of his word. This is what it means to be a disciple. So I want to bring it home. Are you a disciple? Are you growing? Are you apprenticing? Are you sharing in his sufferings? Do you deny yourself daily and follow him? Do you know that you're not who you should be, but you're not what you once were? In other words, you've not arrived in perfection and glory just yet, but praise the Lord as you look back at where God has brought you and where his grace has brought you. You are growing in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? This is submitting to him in our minds. This is what Paul speaks of when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it control you. Let it govern you. This is what Peter means when he says, uh, uh, have your minds brought together with the belt of truth, controlled by the truth of Scripture. This speaks to our being teachable and learning. Our Sunday school class this morning, we're reminded we just took time to consider all of the opportunities that we are exposed to the truth of Scripture on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, and on a monthly basis just here at Grace Church, individually and corporately. And here was our conclusion. We are responsible for so much truth. And the question as disciples is, is what are we doing with it? And are we learning? Do you come to hear me this morning with a proverbial posture? You may not be doing it this morning, or if you are doing this, I'm not picking on you, I promise. But with a proverbial posture of, teach, I can't wait to see what he's going to show me this morning. Let me see if he can tell me something I don't know yet. Is that your posture proverbially? Arms crossed, know it all, but not a continual learner. Asking the Lord to teach you, to grow you, to show you, Christ, because many, that is the case. Psalm 119, we see the example in the pattern of the psalmist where he says, he gives the promise to the Lord. He says, Lord, show me your truth and your word and I will obey it. Proverbs chapter two, Solomon tells his son, he says this son, Proverbs two, one through five, he says, son, if you do this, 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 then you will know true wisdom and treasure. There is the law of the learner, the desire to seek, the desire to hear, the desire to grow after the master, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then there's the law of the teacher. And here Jesus is our teacher, and he's reminding us to be the learner. And friends, I want to remind us in this school of Christ or this school of faith that we are enrolled in, in this sanctification journey, it never ends until he calls us home. It's not like we're in the first grade and then we get promoted to the second grade and the third grade. But then when we get to the 12th grade, we've graduated and then we coast. Not at all. It doesn't work that way in this school of faith. In the school of discipleship, in the school of Jesus, wherever you are, you're to be training those who are behind you. And then wherever you are, there are to be people who are training you. Do you see the discipleship process? There are those who are teaching you, and there are those that you are teaching. There are those who are, being, are putting into your life, and then you're taking as you grow and you learn, and you're making disciples. So there are people behind you that you're bringing along, and there's people up ahead that are the Pauls. We're the Timothy. They're the Pauls, and we're following them as they follow Christ, and as they follow Jesus, we're continuing to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see the first one here is the submission of our mind. But the second one that verse 24 speaks of is we see this construct of discipleship is this. It's one of a slave. Now notice here, nor a servant above his master. This speaks of our volition. This speaks of our will. The scripture makes clear that we are slaves of Christ. We obey him. We follow him. He is the most gracious, loving master that we could ever have. He is the one who goes before. He is the one who provides. He is the one who empowers. But he is Lord. And he comes first. He is Lord of all or not Lord at all, you could say, in our life. And unfortunately for many people, he's Lord of what's left. He does not come first. He is not Lord in their life. And here's what Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to the heart Volition there in verse 24, nor a slave. That word servant means doulos. It is literally a slave is above his master. When we come to Christ as we're led of his spirit, as we come underneath the teaching and the preaching of the word of God, our response is only one. It's not maybe. It's not if I feel like it. It's not feelings driven. It's yes, Lord. <laughs> yes, Lord. Lord, I'm open to your call. How much of life would be easier if every time we opened the word of God in our devotional life, it was just simply, Lord, open now my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your word, out of your law, and I will obey it, whatever you show me this morning. How much blessing would be poured out upon our lives if that was the path, if that was the way? Think about parents as we deal with our children. Our struggles come through disobedience, don't they? The predominant problem in the home as we train up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is one of obedience and disobedience. And it's the same thing as we think about our relationship as serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's one of obedience and one of disobedience. May the Holy Spirit of God give us a desire to obey. How much blessing would we receive and empowering will we know as we follow him and say yes to him? When we feel the Lord call us, nudge us, we just say, yes, Lord. What a life of faith that would be. We don't say, Lord, I'm afraid to share the gospel with them. Lord, I'm not sure. It's just, yes, Lord. What a journey that is. And I pray that we get a taste of it. I'm afraid far too many of us live in the realm of the known, but we're afraid of the unknown. We're too, we're too comfortable living where we have it all figured out instead of living the life of faith that Christ has called us to. Now, secondly, there's the cognizance of discipleship there in verse 26. Notice what Jesus tells them. He says, therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed. There is nothing hidden that will not be known. Now, this idea of cognizance means mental awareness, having clarity on the situation or discernment on the situation. This begins to pick up on a theme that Jesus tells his disciples of choosing the greater fear. Trust in the providential again, themes of providence, themes of preserving grace, things of the right fear of God. And when you fear God, have a right ordered fear, everything else works itself out. We see here in the text, therefore do not fear them. The Lord is aware as he sends his sheep amongst the wolves that there are those who will scheme against their lives or against the purposes or the advance of the gospel. And friends, be encouraged this morning that God is not thwarted. 
God is not up in heaven this morning wringing his hand saying, oh no, they're, they're shooting my missionaries. They're killing those that I send out. The, the gospel is being stopped. It's not, friends. Jesus will tell his disciples in just a few chapters in Matthew chapter 16, I will build not your church, not our church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he says this, know this, that as I send you out, you don't need to be worried about the conniving schemes of your enemies. Just obey me. Follow my spirit. Be wise and shrewd as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Well, how do we do that? You can't do it without prayer. Stay on your knees, friends. Seek his wisdom. We see this illustration all throughout Scripture. We see in the book of Esther where Haman Connives a plan, constructs a plan, and yet he is hanged upon the very gallows that he thought he was so wise to orchestrate this plan and kill the Jews, God's people. God in his mysterious providence says, man desires to do this, but this is what will happen. The day of judgment for you, Haman, is not in the future, it's, it's today. We see in the book of Daniel, in the lion's den, and the whole scenario there where Daniel continued to pray as he always had. He had purpose in his heart to seek the face of God. Everyone knew that. That was his reputation. That was his character. So a plot was sprung to try to do away with Daniel. And ultimately, those who sprung that plot perished by the very lions that they came up with. Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 reminds us, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He, God, does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth none can stop his hand or restrain his hand or say to him, what are you doing? No one can. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it however he wishes. But the way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Or maybe this one, Daniel 2.21. He changes the times and the seasons, doesn't he? We woke up this morning and it goes from one to another. We woke up to Alaska this morning. He changes the times and the seasons and somehow the weathermen still have a job. They tell us one thing. They don't know what they're doing. They have no clue what they're doing. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings. He raises up kings. He takes down kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So take courage, disciples of Christ here this morning at Grace Church. Rest in your sovereign God. Rest in his wisdom and go with his empowering and his, the confidence in his sending you. Thirdly, we see the courage. Verse 27, notice what he tells him. He says, whatever I tell you in the dark, or in private, as we had this consultation, this time of instruction. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, go and preach from the housetops. Go and proclaim it. Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, same word, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And with the word of God, build up the people of God. Strengthen the people of God. What I'm doing this morning is preaching the word. And that's what Jesus to tell, instructs his disciples to do. Preach it from the housetops. Declare it from the housetops. Do not be ashamed of me and my word. Do not be ashamed of me and my gospel. Why does Jesus say that? Because we are prone to be ashamed of him and his gospel. He instructs his disciples to do what is going to be the natural tendency of self-preservation for them to have. That's what Paul says, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does Paul say that? We tend to be ashamed of the gospel. And the answer to that is why? It's the message that saves. So Paul declares, and it's almost as if Paul is, is preaching to himself. And when we preach and when we make public declarations, there's two things taking place. It's not only instructing others, but it's reminding ourselves, I'm not just preaching to you, but I'm preaching to myself as well. LeGrand, don't stop preaching. Don't stop being faithful because you're prone to want to do that. Paul models this for us. Jesus instructs his disciples here in this as well. The courage that's required. And friends, it takes courage to speak. We have a society that is reducing more and more to the, to the margins, and we're using third-party mediums to do all of our communicating. I know they're tools for life and for whatever, but we've got to get back to conversations. We've got to get back to prayer. We've got to get back to life on life. We can't, we can't outsource it to text messages. It just doesn't work that way. It can be a part of what we do. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But we must be courageous 
We must live the life behind our posts. We, we must not only put it out there on the internet, internet, but may they see it in us and hear it from us. May we back up, you could say, another way of saying it is, may we be what our posts act like we, what we are on social media. May, we, may our lives back up what we want people to know and to hear and to follow after. Look with me, verse 28, what he, the counsel he gives regarding discipleship and what a comfort this is to us. Well, this is Jesus coming to his disciples and he's giving them counseling before they even know they need it. He says, do not fear those. Again, notice this theme of fear and persecution and what is to come, and yet there's comfort here. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But I will tell you who to fear. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Here Jesus gives mental recognition to his disciples that there will be fear that enters into their hearts, again, in a different way. And when that happens, do not fear those who threaten you harm. Do not fear those who feel like they're doing their God's bidding and cutting off your head in the name of Allah or shooting you down in the streets or persecuting your well-being or your family or threatening to take your money or threatening to ruin your business or threaten to hurt you where it hurts the most in our pocketbooks and in other areas of life. Who you need to fear. In other words, Jesus says this is going to happen. And when it happens, just remember this. They cannot touch your soul. Now, I don't want to be fantastic this morning, but COVID-19 revealed, revealed a lot to us. Let me give you some examples. It revealed to us our fear of death as a society. It revealed to us the things that really, really run our world, if you could say. The fears of disease, and I'm not saying being irresponsible, I'm not advocating any of that, but it just revealed what we fear, you could say, maybe the most, the most. It was a great illustration for us to kind of work through that trial, quote-unquote, as we hear Jesus say that in that context. Just insert here, do not fear COVID-19, but fear him who has power over both body and soul. Don't fear cancer that threatens to take your body, but fear him who has power over both body and soul. Don't fear someone who may take your life for the sake of the gospel, but fear him who has power over your body and soul. Don't fear those who have power over your financial well-being. Like, in other words, if you're faithful to Christ, or if you don't stop being faithful to the message of Christ, then we'll fire you from your job, or we'll find you, or we'll hurt you here, 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 and here. And the response to the church that we had to, in some sense, learn, some more than others. In Canada, our brothers in Canada were imprisoned for it. At the time, it was so surreal and like, are we serious? What's going on here? But the reason parts of that were so nebulous and confusing is that the church wasn't ready for what Jesus is describing right here in Matthew chapter 10. In other words, when these things come, when they happen, when disease or governors or policies threaten your life, remember the greater fear, which is the fear of God. Now, it's easy for me to say this right here, and it's easy for you to hear it. But the question is, is on our job, when the boss comes to you and says, if you keep speaking to your coworker, and, and he's got a struggling marriage, and he's coming to you for advice, and you keep talking about the scriptures, we don't do that here. You can't open up your Bible here. So you need to stop that. That's where this is going to apply to you. You, you need wisdom. You need discernment. You need illumination of the Holy Spirit, Lord. You have given me this job. You've, you've called me to serve you faithfully where, where I am. Lord, I actually wasn't even seeking this today, but he knows my witness. He knows my trust in you. He knows I'm a disciple of Christ. He has come to me, and Lord, I'm going to be faithful to you. Or, or should I not? Maybe we should line up a time after work, honor the policies of the work, and, and try to figure this thing out. What, what I'm trying to say to you is, is you're going to have to seek the Lord and follow the Spirit and be ready for what comes your way when you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are following the Lord and His leading in your life. So friends, are you ready for that? Be ready to speak when called upon. Trust in the Holy Spirit to guide you, to bring the Word of God to bear when you're in that moment of trial. So much more we could say here. We need to move on quickly. Lastly, verses 29 and 31. Jesus, again, invokes this fatherhood of God doctrine that began in, 
Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And notice here he brings it again to this passage. He's not just the teacher sending out the pupils. He brings in the doctrine of the fatherhood of God here in verses 29 through 31. And he wants us to know the care, the care in discipleship. And he asks this question. Now, this is Jesus' favorite illustration to do of moving from the lesser to the greater. If this is true, then how much more? This. So here, he invokes the lesser argument of the sparrows. Notice what he says. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than his sparrows. Here Jesus wants his disciples to know that the Father is commissioning them and the Father cares for them. Now, how emboldening this is for us, especially in the moment of trial, that we have the Father's care. And he wants them to know that in the economic scheme of things, A copper coin is not much, and sparrows are not much in the animal kingdom, but the Father knows. In other words, nothing happens apart from the Father's understanding and knowledge and will. How much more can we trust in his care for man, for us, as the bride for whom Christ died? So confidence, friends, confidence in discipleship, confidence in following the will and pattern of God, confidence comes from being supported. And here Jesus supports his disciples. He sends his disciples out. Confidence not only comes from being supported, confidence comes from being prepared. And may the Lord prepare us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We struggle with confidence. We, we grow ashamed of things. Well, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, remembering his calling, his sending, his support. And may we be like the wise man in the book of Proverbs who has the zeal of the Lord, he has the boldness of a lion because he fears his God. He has chosen the greater fear, not of disease or mankind, but in his sovereign God. Listen, if you don't nail down your fears, you will fear something. You will serve something. You will worship something. So you, say, you may say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, that's fine. Not really, but okay, for the sake of our, that's fine. Then, then you're serving something, and that is your God. You are made to worship. You are made to fear. And who you are made to worship and fear and worship and reverence and all is the eternal creator God. So as we close this morning, turn with me to Hebrews 11 and verse 1. And hear this closing final exhortation to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. May the Lord help us to bring it together, keeping our eyes, walking in the fear of the Lord. Having the fear of the Lord, the book of Proverbs says there is strong confidence. That confidence is not in us, in our ability or lifting of weights or support through human machinations or or schemes. It comes from our sovereign God. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. So we close this morning, Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2. And if you know the context of the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews just walked through this hall of faith in Hebrews 11, where he kind of takes this hall of fame journey of pointing to the different saints and all throughout the Old Testament who have lost their lives for the sake of Christ, and yet they looked forward to the coming of Christ with lives that were full of faith. And each one in Hebrews 11 says, by faith, right? So by faith. Moses, by faith, Joseph, by faith. So they're all known as their designation of by faith. And friends, this morning, as we've looked at the right fear of God, being commissioned as disciples, by faith, we come to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And the author says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who've come before, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, And let us run with endurance, with patience, the race that is set before us. How do we do this? How do we have a greater fear? How do we have a right orchestration of things, a right perspective? Here's the answer, friends. Looking unto Jesus. 
looking to the teacher, looking to the master, the one that we're not greater than. We are not above our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Friends, this morning, do not grow weary in well-doing. Do not grow discouraged. Keep looking to Jesus, who is the author of your faith. We were talking about that just a moment ago. As you think about your faith and you're confessing Christ at some point in the past, that's great. Keep looking to him, who will preserve you in his grace. He's the author of your faith. He's also the finisher of it. And may you finish your race with joy. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we just want to confess here at Grace Church what a joy it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Our goal this morning in the last couple weeks has not been to be fantastic, but Lord, is to remind ourselves of what you've called us to do and be. Fathers, we continue to live and until your return, we have no idea what is on the forefront for us. But Lord, we confess this before God and before men this morning. We desire to be faithful to Christ. Lord, if you choose to bless our work and our lives and our homes, then all glory be to Christ. Lord, if you choose to withhold your blessing for your own purposes, again, all glory be to Christ. Lord, if you choose to promote us and to advance us and to give us the harvest of souls for our labor, and to show us the fruit of our work in the here and now, then all glory be to Christ. But Lord, if you desire to wait until the day of judgment before you show us the full harvest that is coming our way, then all glory be to Christ. Lord, if you allow us to live a life of blessing and ease and allow us to be those that pray for and support and to send others to go to the gospel mission field, then all glory be to Christ. But Lord, if you call us to go and to give our lives for the advance of the gospel, not only at work and in our neighborhoods, but in the foreign mission field, then all glory be to Christ. Father, here's the point. We declare and confess publicly before you this morning, we desire to burn out like a candle for the Lord Jesus Christ and to fear you, to love you, to worship you, and to reverence you with our lives. That would be evident to all like a city on a hill. And Lord, when our moment comes, if you call us to it, May we be bold and faithful to Jesus, who was bold and faithful for us on the cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. Uh, we'll peace in the house of Zion.